Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. So my guest today is Joseph Regal. Joseph is an associate professor of communication studies at Northeastern University and a former fellow and faculty associate at the Breckman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. He's the author of several books and papers about digital media and the social implications of digital technology. His most recent book is Hacking Life, Systematized Living and Its Discontents from MIT Press, and it's just been published this year. So welcome to the show, Joseph. Thank you, John. Right. So we're going to talk today about this most recent book of yours, Hacking Life. Uh, and I suppose I should mention at the outset, before we get into the meat of it, that um, this book is actually available uh, open access online. You can get a, a HTML or a web version of it for free from the MIT Press webpage. So if people want to check it out, they can do so immediately. They can also purchase a copy, hard copy or a, an ebook as well, if they want to do that. So I just wanted to get that out of the way at the outset. Mm-hmm. Now, this book deals with something that I would probably be inclined to call the quantified self movement. And this is a a movement that I've spoken about in the past on this podcast. So just to quickly refresh listeners' memories, um, members of the quantified self movement believe broadly that we can use technology to track and quantify our personal data and then use this data to experiment with and optimize our own lives in various ways. Now, in principle, this is a good thing because it should enable greater autonomy and personal fulfillment. But as the subtitle to your book points out, many people resist these claims. So what I'd like to try and do in this interview is explore both the positives and negatives of this approach to life. Now, I've written about some of these in the past myself, and my sense is that we probably share similar outlooks, although there might be some points of disagreement along the way. Now, the first question I wanted to ask you about this book is the terminology that you use. So as I say, I would call what you're talking about the quantified self movement, but you prefer to talk about a more general idea of of life hacking, and that's featuring prominently there in the title to your book. So why do you choose that terminology? Is it that the quantified self concept is is too limiting, or is there some other reason for preferring life hacking as as the term? Uh, If we were to think about, you know, uh, spheres of uh, overlap, kind of like a Venn diagram, I would actually think of quantified self being subsumed within life hacking. And that is because I think in the broader ambient of life hacking, particularly by way of an ethos that I speak about, uh, sort of personality and cultural norm associated with it, there are lots of subdomains like quantified self. So I think of quantified self as the metric and measuring obsessed uh, aspect of life hacking, but there's also other 
affinities and applications of life hacking to other domains of life. So whereas the quantified self people tend to be most uh, fixated with health, though not exclusively so, but definitely measuring things and experimenting, there's other areas like being productive. And again, there's some quantified self there with respect to relationships, uh, dating, how to manage your relationship with your spouse or your partner, even things like how do you find meaning and philosophy. Uh, life hacking is much more broad than just the measuring and metric and experimentation. And so when I talk about life hacking, I'm talking about an ethos that includes four things. It includes a very rationalistic approach. Uh, it's very individualistic and it's very fond of experimentation and systemization. And so there's definitely some overlap there with quantified self, but I think quantified self is a subdomain within that larger ethos. Yeah, so those four features are, I think, important because I mean, there could be a danger if we broaden the concept of life hacking too much that basically anyone who's interested in improving themselves in any respect qualifies as a life hacker. But I would imagine you want the conception to be a little bit more restrictive than that. So it's this kind of systematization instinct and this desire for self-experimentation that becomes really the hallmark of this approach. Is that right? Indeed, you're right. And this is also relates to the larger bubble then of self-help. Is life hacking a type of self-help? Is it a different type of self-help? And so I say life hacking actually is a type of self-help. It's a type of self-help for the 21st century and it's specific to a particular group of people. Uh, there's a really good book out there. It's a little bit old now, but it was quite apt at the time by Florida by the name of the creative class, the creative industry. So in the 21st century, we have a lot of people who don't have a manager looking over their shoulder telling them, uh, you must do X at time Y. Rather, they have a whole bunch of things they have to do in a particular day, in a particular week, and they have a fair amount of autonomy about when to do those things. So this includes, you know, educators, writers, programmers, uh, designers. And so they have that flexibility and they have a whole day ahead of them. And no one is telling them they must produce a thousand widgets by the end of that day. So then they are struggling with that problem of, well, how do I motivate myself to do all the things that I really want to do this week? but by which no one is actually twisting my arm to have it done at a particular time during the day. So life hacking really is self-help for this creative class. And I think that's an interesting distinction as well, because typically self-help doesn't really limit itself to one domain. But here I think, again, in the 21st century, we can see a division between the creative class and the people who, for example, stuck in Amazon warehouses, kind of automatons working like robots until they're actually replaced by real robots. And so there is this aspirational element of if you are in the creative class, how can you be more productive, more efficient, uh, find greater contentment in your life, have more optimum relationships and health? And then the people who you know are working in Amazon factories and driving Ubers who really would probably like to get out of that life at some point, and then they aspire to become a member of the creative class, only to find perhaps it's not as easy as you might think because you have to motivate yourself and give a lot of thought about how to brand and present yourself. Yeah, so you're kind of getting into some issues there that I think feature a lot in the critique of the life hacking ethos, which we'll come back to, I mean, partly to do with you know who, who has access or who has the luxury of availing of this style of systematized living. Uh, so we'll 
shove that or push that forward in our conversation too when we discuss the critiques of this approach. For the time being, I just want to maybe fixate on the intersection between technology and life hacking. I mean, you know, one of the examples I think you use in the book is you know, Benjamin Franklin as maybe one of the original life hackers. He has this famous uh, to-do list or daily routine and things that people point out. But his approach isn't hugely technologized. Is there something about digital technology in particular that really facilitates this approach to life? It's very prone to systematizing. So you don't necessarily need a lot of tech. So, for example, Tim Ferriss, who doesn't talk about life hacking a lot, he calls himself a lifestyle designer and a human guinea pig. He's not that technologically savvy. He's invested in a lot of uh, tech companies, but he's not writing programs out there that help him manage to do a particular thing in a particular day. But he is systematizing. And the thing, again, about the 21st century is that people who are good with systems, who build systems, who know how to hack systems, they have really come to the fore. They have a lot more power and visibility than ever before. And so with that, the system is so much more visible. It becomes a priority. And again, people look to that as an aspiration. The term life hacking was actually coined by Danny O'Brien over a decade ago. And he was a writer and a digital activist. He works at the EFF now. And he realized that some of the most productive, efficient sort of people he knew were programmers who were really good with systems, be it a technical system that they were working on for work or creating their own system to automate something during their day. And so he proposed a session whereby they'd get together and exchange some of their hacks about how to make their lives more productive. And interestingly, he and Merlin Mann, another big proponent of life hacking, he had that notion of uh, inbox zero. Um, Interestingly, they both admit that they are not overly systematic. They liken themselves to uh, sinners or people with an addiction who have trouble uh, giving it up. So they see themselves as very disorganized and not being a natural at this sort of task, but seeing the benefits and the strengths. And one of the ironies is both O'Brien and Mann, both collectively and individually in Mann's case, were supposed to write a book about life hacking, but they can never get it done. And so that is evidence of the fact that they looked to these systems, including things like Getting Things Done, which is a organization and productivity system that predated life hacking by a couple years, as a way to help them deal with the problem, even if they weren't uh, natural at it. Yeah, I mean, I can sympathize with some of that myself and that, um, you know, I've, I've often downloaded or attempted to use some of these motivational systems. I've, you know, I've read books like Getting Things Done, and I would say my success rate at implementing those approaches to my, my daily life is somewhere in the region of like 5 to 10% is what I succeed in in the end. Mm-hmm. But how valuable is that 5 or 10% to you? I have no idea since I don't uh, <laughs> track and quantify uh-huh. the value. Uh, I'm sure it's valuable to some extent, but uh, more of a vague sense of its value as opposed to a precise grasp on, on how, how valuable it is. Yeah, I think psychologically I am very systematizing myself. I definitely have that hacker sort of mindset, but I'm not much on the quantifi- quantified self sort of. I don't want to measure and and metricize everything. So I think that's another one of those those differences. Um, I really do like systems, and they don't have to be technical systems. So 
the Ben Franklin, his his tips and hacks weren't necessarily technological. Getting things done wasn't necessarily technological. Um, and some of this I actually trace back to the Whole Earth Catalog. Uh, again, has lots of history and I think is very much a predecessor, if not an ancestor, of a lot of life hacking culture. But the whole idea of the Whole Earth Catalog back in the 1960s and 1970s put forth by Stuart Brand was that these were tools for a new uh, earth. You know, it was kind of this transhumanistic impulse of if we had the right tools and we used uh, Buckminster Fuller geodesic domes for our housing and build earth ships and, you know, come up with all these really clever ways to live our lives, our lives would be that much better. And they didn't necessarily involve computers and silicon. I mean, even books and quotes. Like Tim Ferriss is very fond of saying what is your favorite book what book do you gift the most to other people he's very fond of quotes i also like quotes as well um and when you look at the whole earth catalog it had gadgets but it also had tools it had books it had ideas so really anything that can be taken as a system a way of mastering something a way of perhaps bending it to your own will and your own intentions that all falls within the ambit of life hacking yeah, maybe we could talk about some of the specific examples that you, you discuss in your book and areas of life that we might bring this hacker ethos to bear upon. So, I mean, the main chunk of your book is divided into a series of chapters that look at different use cases and some of the issues that arise within them. One of the first use cases you look at is the notion of hacking time. And, I mean, that might sound a little bit abstract initially, so maybe you could explain what you mean by that idea of hacking time and how could we go about doing this? When people are first exposed to life hacking, they are typically coming because they have a concern about productivity. They would like to get more done in their day. And the immediate thing they reach for is that sense of, of course, you can't create time, but could I somehow make more time in my day? And they naturally start thinking about scheduling. But as an Across all of these domains, uh, I make a distinction that often people's first impulse, the thing that they first reach for, isn't what they really want. And so they think about, well, if I have a way to schedule more into my day, I will be that much more effective and I will be that much more content. But that's not necessarily the case. I think Elon Musk, some people follow his example, has his schedule uh, divided into like 30-minute sessions And so every 30 minute of his day is accounted for in some particular way. Now, that might work for him, but I think both the studies of people uh, and what they're able to do and what they are comfortable in doing and a lot of the self-help about productivity don't advise you to do that sort of thing. Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he has a nice aphorism. Let me see if I can remember it correctly. He said, don't prioritize your schedule schedule your priorities. So the idea there is very often we think what I need to do to make myself more productive and to get more time is to squeeze more into my schedule. But he says, don't do that. Instead, think about what are the three most important things you would like to do today and put those into your schedule and prioritize those. So again, the first step is to think about how can I be productive? How can I squeeze more into our calendar? A slightly more wise and sophisticated approach is then to start scheduling your priorities instead. Um, And there's other things you can do. So for example, I talk about 
the idea of hacking your sleep. So maybe you can get by by only having two or three hours of sleep. Buckminster Fuller started experimenting with this again back decades and decades ago. But it is spoken of more recently. People will talk about the Uberman schedule. And I forget what the exact breakdown in terms of times are, but uh, maybe you can only uh, get by with three hours of sleep if you take a 20-minute nap every three hours. And again, the numbers aren't quite right there. And then finally, the, the third big way that people try to approach hacking time in addition to scheduling and uh, hacking their sleep, which not many people do, is delegation. And that's what Tim Ferriss talked about a lot. The idea that you know, if you want to get more done in the day, are there people that you can offshore certain tasks to? So this is the adoption of a corporate practice. You know, if you want to do things more cheaply and efficiently, you send it out to the Philippines or China or Singapore or wherever it might be where labor is cheap. And so life hackers, including Ferris, will do things like um, one of the folks, Manish Sethi, who came up with this idea of a, of a wristband that zaps you when you've done something you shouldn't do as a type of motivation hack. He had this thing where he would pay someone in the Philippines to remind him to brush his teeth at night. Um, and it was very, very cheap because uh, people's time in the Philippines relative to his time in America wasn't uh, that costly. Tim Ferriss ended up, uh, when he was dating, he got sick of going on dates and going to parties and all this sort of stuff. So he decided he would create a profile of his perfect woman, a sort of target, and then he would send that out to five different teams distributed throughout the world and then task them with the goal of finding and scheduling women for him to meet at a cafe that was close to him. And so he was able to offshore and delegate a lot of that work, which gave him more time. And he found it much more effective than him going to parties and just randomly meeting women. And so those are the three ways that people try to approach the hacking of the time scheduling, sleep, minimizing sleep, and delegating. Yeah, so I would say, like, this is one area where I th the hacking approach I do find beneficial in, in my own life. And I particularly endorse this notion of not trying to schedule every minute of your day in order to maximize productivity, if that's what you're interested in. Um, so actually, somebody you do reference in the book, Paul Graham, has a famous essay, which I... I don't know if I remember the title to it, but something like the the maker's schedule versus the manager's schedule. Mm. Are you familiar with that article? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the manager's schedule is kind of like the Elon Musk schedule where you're breaking everything down into a series of meetings and 15-minute increments, and every minute of your day is fully occupied and accounted for, whereas the maker's schedule, the more creative worker, has a much looser uh, working day spends hours of uninterrupted time being creative and contemplating things and coming up with ideas and so at least for me i find that that maker's schedule is something that i i try to implement on a daily basis i like to ensure that there are large blocks of free time every day and i do use then some technology to hack that and ensure that i do have that uninterrupted time so i've mentioned this on previous podcasts you know i i use an, an app called freedom quite regularly to block access to distracting websites and other social media services on a daily basis to ensure that I have that block of time. So I, I do find that combination of strategies quite helpful in my own life. 
Yeah, I think that's a genuine insight. And when you look at the history of self-help, you will find those insights recurring. And with each sort of decade, each generation, the insight is recast in the aspirations and culture and language of that current generation. So someone else, uh, in addition to Paul Graham, who I mentioned a couple of times in the book, because I think he's a very uh, interesting philosopher and essayist on, on hacking and hacking culture. I mentioned Stephen Covey, you know, that's three or four decades ago. Cal Newport, who's a computer science professor at Georgetown, he also has a sideline of self-help. He started out writing books of like how to be an A student. He wrote two or three books about how to be a really good student. And he has since moved to the notion of digital minimalism and having that dedicated time to do high quality work. And his book has gotten quite a lot of attention this past year, even though the insights aren't all that particularly novel. They have been circulating for for some time, actually. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's like even the name of your book, The Life Hacking, it's recasting maybe an ancient idea in the vocabulary of late 20th century, early 21st century computer culture as well, to an extent. Mm -hmm. So let's move on from this notion of time, because I want to just get some examples in before we get into a more critical discussion, what about hacking motivations? That's another one of the chapters in the book. Uh, how do we go about doing that, and what's what's the idea there? So one of the insights you get from time is that time is fixed, right? So you can try to schedule your priorities or throw a lot of stuff onto your calendar. You can try to minimize your sleep. You can delegate. Uh, But one of the challenges for the creative class, like myself, like I have the day, I have a couple phone calls today, including this podcast. Uh, But otherwise, my time is relatively unscheduled. And so what am I going to do with that time? How do I make good use of that time? And that is really a question of motivation. How do I keep myself on task? And so, again, people have various uh, uh, takes on this. One of my favorite books is a self-published kind of Amazon print uh, by Nick Winter, who wrote a book called The Motivation Hacker. And he is very much an exemplar of the life hacker type. And he read a lot of the popular science on motivation and, and procrastination and how to avoid it. And he used some of the theories and techniques in there to see if he could hack his motivation to absurd levels. One of the things he made use of is it's called temporal motivation theory. And the idea there is that you're most motivated to do something by way of a particular equation. And there's a division. And so what you want to do is you want to maximize your expectancy and your value. So people are much more motivated to do something if they think they can actually accomplish it and it is valuable to them. That is divided by impulsiveness times delay. So people lose motivation when they can be easily distracted by impulsiveness, and when the thing that they're trying to realize is very far out. So I tell my students this, you know, uh, how, how would you parse your motivation with respect to getting your college degree? Uh, expectancy, do you think you can do it? Most of them think they can get their degree. It would be very, very valuable in the workplace, the marketplace to have that degree. Uh, but working at your degree for four or five years that's that's a big delay. So that makes it difficult, as does the impulsiveness of having your phone, you know, nagging you with updates and asking you to like and retweet and share things. And so Nick Winter, he tried to maximize expectancy and value 
and limit his impulsiveness and delay in the particular tasks he was doing. And he was programming an app for learning Chinese characters and some other things. And he also made use of an app. Uh, and there are a couple apps out there that will penalize you if you fail to meet your commitments. Sometimes these are called Ulysses contracts with the idea that Ulysses uh, in ancient Greek mythos, uh, when he wanted to uh, sail past the sirens, he wanted to hear the beautiful call of the sirens, but he didn't want to drive his ship into the rocks, which is what so many other sailors did. So he had his sailors stick cotton and beeswax in their ears, and he had himself tied to the mast. And so even though he would want to be uh, impulsively pulled towards the sirens, he made it impossible for himself to do so. In military campaigns, sometimes when an army lands, uh, deboards the ships, they burn the ships so they have no uh, opportunity other than to move forward. And so he did some things like that. And there are apps whereby you can say, I want to brush my teeth every night you know, before 8 p.m. And I will commit myself to $7. And if I fail to do it, I will pay the app developer $7. And then it'll get up to $14. And I spoke to people who use these apps uh, and they use these to try to keep them on what's called sort of the narrow path of motivation uh, to keep themselves doing the thing that they want to do in fear of facing that penalty. And one particular app that I talk about is Beeminder. So it's kind of reminding you to be the productive bee and stay on that golden path. Yeah, and another thing you mentioned and was the stick contracts, um, which I can't remember what that acronym actually stands for but it's same basic idea that you pay out a penalty if you don't meet a goal there is as far as i recall a subtle and maybe important difference between beeminder and stick insofar as beeminder has this you know daily path that you have to stay on so there's kind of targets that you have to meet at regular increments of time whereas stick if i remember is more like a long-term goal like you know i want to lose 10 pounds by christmas and if i don't uh, the penalty is paid Whereas Beeminder might have something like, I want to lose a pound every two weeks, or I have to do a certain amount of exercise every day or something. So you're focusing on intermediate goals that get you to your, your long-term goal. Is that is that my getting that correct, or am I misremembering I how it works? I believe so. Both apps are very similar, but they focus on some things a little bit differently. So you're right that Beeminder really does focus on the idea of little steps, little steps make the path. And so they want to keep you working on those little increments uh, because what we know from motivational studies is that when you make yourself a very big goal and you only, you know, there's no milestones along the way people procrastinate till the day that their big goal is due and there's no way that they're going to achieve it. Um, I, I also believe the payout schemes are a little bit different. So for the most part, um, there's a, a married couple who are behind Beeminder and they have advanced degrees in things like computer science and contracts and negotiation and game theory. Um, I think Stick came out of some economists at Yale. And Beeminder, I think they get most of the money. Um, Stick was a little bit different in that you could also use it to donate to various causes that you might care about or that you might not care about. Uh, some people have spoken about, for instance, uh, a self-help author said that he wanted to give up eating a particular type of dried candied fruit. And he wrote a check to the American Nazi party and told his wife, 
if you catch me <laughs> eating uh, dried, uh, what was it? I forget, apricot or something like that, though I don't think dried apricot has a lot of sugar. Mangoes, maybe it was dried mangoes. Uh, send this check to the Nazi party. And he, of course, never would want to have that happen. And so he, it was successful for him. So, so since you mentioned the makers of the Beeminder app, this is a diversion to an extent, but they're a curious and interesting couple, and there's some interesting uh, stories about them. I've written about it in the past. So if I'm remembering their names, it's Bethany Sewell or Sewell and Daniel Reeves. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, I mean, can you maybe share some examples of how they apply this hacking ethos in their own lives, including some of their kind of counterintuitive approaches to their relationship? Yeah, so I talk about them in the motivation chapter, and I return to them in the chapter on hacking relationships. And they take a very game-theoretic, economic sort of approach to everything. And once they were in a relationship and married, they wanted to figure out how can we do things in a way that is fair? And uh, fairness is a very important principle in their scheme of things. Uh, and for instance, if this question of who's going to take out the trash tonight, they have a system whereby they both bid on who wants to least take out the trash. So uh, Bethany might say, I'd pay you $3 to take out the trash. And Danny might say, I would pay you $4 to take out the trash. And so they end up concluding that Danny should take, should pay, um, let me see, which way is it? It's the least or the most. So I think, yeah, Danny pays $4 to Bethany to take out the trash. If I'm under, if I'm, if I'm presenting the scheme, right. And that way it's fair because the person who least wanted to do it was able to pay the person, uh, who was most, uh, amendable to doing it. And they talk about applying this sort of bidding to all kinds of things in their life, like who's going to tuck the kids in, who's going to take the trash out. And when people read about this online, they thought, this is horrible. This is you know, so quantified. It's so rational. It's so objective. And I talk about some of the critics who are like, what about the give and take of relationships? Um, what about how alienating this might be? Uh, and I can see why some people reacted to that. And I am certainly critical of some life hackers in the book. But I've thought for this particularly nerdy, geeky couple, this seemed to work for them. They were doing it with the principles of transparency and fairness. And so for them, I think it was okay. I don't think other people should necessarily adopt that system. And this is one of the differences I make between, I try to make a lot of distinctions to be helpful in the book between geeks and gurus. And one of the differences there is I found a lot of life hackers out there that are just genuinely trying to experiment with things. They're fond of systems and they'll say, hey, this is working for me. Uh, the gurus instead are saying, this not only worked for me, but I think it'll work for you. And if you pay me some money, I can tell you how to do it. And I would want to ask different questions of both of those constituencies. Geeks, I want to say, you know, what, what led you to this and what meaning do you take from it? And does it seem to work for you? Whereas with the gurus, I want to ask what assumptions underlie the advice that you're giving is the advice sound and how much are you charging for it? Yeah, I agree with that. I, myself and Brian Earp and Sven Nyom wrote a paper about quantified self-technologies in relationships. And we used the example of Bethany Sewell and Daniel Reeves to illustrate one of the arguments that we made uh, um, or one of the points we were making, which is partly that 
there's no one size fits all when it comes to relationships. So you have to kind of allow people within relationships to experiment and design their own preferred approach. And also that even though this exchange-based model sounds bizarre to most people, there is actually potential value in it insofar as it increases the amount of transparency and accountability within relationships. So a problem that is often confronted by people in intimate relationships is a growing sense of resentment towards the other partner because you don't think that they're doing their fair share or they're not treating you with sufficient dignity or value. And this approach that they have taken to their relationship, to some extent anyway, mitigates against that problem. I think so. And and, and it's not about uh, exploitation. It's not about tricking. You know, it's trying to get away from resentment. And I think that's very different from the other case that I talk about of pickup artists, where the idea is, again, relationships and people are just wet computers. They're systems. And if you learn the right sort of techniques, and a lot of that is bogus pseudoscience, but if you learn the right sort of techniques, then you can exploit the hidden rules of say, thinking of the opposite sex or how relationships works and make use of that. And that approach isn't just limited to male pickup artists. In the book, I noticed that the perfect sort of flip side of male pickup artistry is a book that was popular, a self-help book that was popular a couple of decades ago called The Rules. And in there, one of the rules is like, never call the man back, you know, for more than three days and, you know, make him always do the work. So I just found it ironic that you had these two groups of self-help gurus. The one, the guys which are saying that you need to neg women, which is to kind of slightly insult them to show that you're not intimidated and you don't care uh, and kind of diss them on one hand. And then you have advice for the women and their rules and how you're trying to not show attention to men and make them show that, you know, they're more attracted to you, to you than vice versa. And you just have these very combat, com- combative, zero-sum uh, competitors going at one another. And I don't know if they're going to find a genuine relationship uh, between the two. Yeah, I think yeah, the problem with the, the pickup artist style approach and the, the um, approach in, in the rules is that it seems to normalize a kind of deception and also a dominance submission type of dynamic within a relationship so it it presumes that that's what's desirable and then works hacks around that basic model of of how a relationship should work so i mean that's part of that's what i see as being particularly problematic about that that approach Um, yes and and in self-help that's what i mean by the assumptions that underlie the advice that's being given and so, you know, these three questions of well, what assumptions are there? Well, this is a competitive zero sum sort of game. The other person is seen as an opponent that you need to manipulate. And then does it work? Well, some say yes, some say no. And then, you know, what is the cost? And while the cost is that you buy these books, maybe you go to $100, $1,000 courses. Um, and maybe there's, you know, detrimental costs in terms of the people you harm along the way or how you make yourself unhappy or harm yourself by following this type of advice well i mean i, I do want to we've kind of touched upon criticisms of the technology and i want to deal with these in, in more detail now but before we do so i'm conscious of the fact that i've left out a couple of the main classes of life hacking that you discuss in your book particularly hacking health and well-being and hacking meaning now this isn't particularly fair to you but could you give maybe a couple of quick examples of the life hacking approach to health and well-being 
And then also the approach to meaning, which is a more abstract concept. Mm-hmm. So health and well-being, again, that is definitely something most people are probably uh, familiar with. The idea that maybe if you drink three cups of coffee, you'll lose weight or whatever it might be. Uh, people have been trying to hack their health for some time. And the reason I found this domain really interesting because it, it again, allowed me to make an important distinction. And that's a distinction between nominal and optimal hacking. And so when I look look at life hackers and I think what concerns me and what seems fairly benign, I did meet people, for instance, who suffer from migraines or they want to be a bit more fit and they want to take more steps or they want to have a better diet. And so, for instance, one of those people I spoke to had migraines. She kept a very careful journal of her experiences and phenomena through the day. Like, what did she eat? Uh, was she out in bright sunlight? Did she hear a lot of noise? to try to figure out if that would help her get rid of the migraines. And I'm very sympathetic, and I've done some of this myself, that when I have a chronic problem, I'm like, well, what can I figure out? For instance, my dog seems to have a food allergy, so I had to keep very careful track of what he was eating and what was seeming to cause his particular symptoms. And, you know, I want a healthy, robust, normal kind of dog. But there's also definitely, particularly in the health domain, uh, people who want to be, they want to be optimal. They want to be at the leading edge, at the cutting edge. And here we touch on transhumanism, people that want to live forever, that want to uplaid their brains into computers. But it includes people that want to, you know, do marathons, who want to, for some reason, taking ice cold baths is really popular among life hackers and lifestyle design gurus. They want to be at the best. And there, I think there's real risks to what they are doing. So, for example, there are people who like to hold their breath, and you're not supposed to experiment with that while you're swimming. But people have almost died while holding their breath underwater. Uh, Tim Ferriss wanted to impress people who were going to be monitoring his response to various grueling exercises. And he understood that resveratrol, if I say that correctly, that ingredient in red wine, gives you increases your stamina. And he thought, well, I'm going to take a bunch of resveratrol supplements and I'll really impress them. But he did not realize that these supplements also had a little bit of a laxative in them, which makes them more effective. And so he basically OD'd on laxatives and was on the toilet for an hour. Um, So when you're trying to push yourself to be optimal and optimizing, I think there we bump into some significant problems. We can come back to that, the dangers of, of being overly optimizing in your life's pursuits. Then with meaning, uh, as I walk through each one of these chapters, I can follow some life hackers' paths in life almost. So first they wanted to be productive at work. They thought if they could better schedule their days, they would be more productive and more happy. And then they realized that's not quite it. Instead, they need to hack their motivation. And if they do that, then they'll be happy because they'll be really productive and effective and they'll have a good salary and they'll make a lot of money. And then they realize that isn't really enough either because now they have a house or a couple of houses full of stuff and that's not helping them either. So they become digital minimalists. They sell everything and they travel the world as lifestyle gurus and influencers. And then they realize that's not really quite helping them either. And along the way, they probably experimented with their health and with their relationships. And finally, they, they end up at meaning. It's like, no matter what I do, know how perfectly I hack my life and optimize my life. I'm still going to have some discontent. So what do I do with that discontent? So again, those who have a fondness for the hacker ethos, that rational, individualistic, 
systemizing an experimental approach to life, they look to various spiritual and religious traditions and say, well, what can I learn from these that will help me deal with the inevitable disappointments and suffering inherent in life? And there they tend to pull from Stoicism and Buddhism. Those are the two that I focus on. And those, those are also the two that I'm very fond of myself. And again, I think there's some benefits there, but because of the way the hacker ethos uh, tends to exert itself, I think there's some dangers and limitations in a mix and match sort of do-it-yourself approach to religion. Okay, so uh, I mean that's a useful review of, of some of the possible forms of life hacking that are out there. I, and we have touched on issues that arise with, with some of them. So I want to look at maybe general criticisms of the life hacking approach. And I want to start with something that I set out in an email to you, but I think I want to rephrase it, which is just that a concern that has to do with um, life hacking and self-experimentation as not being very effective or useful approach or uses of our resources or time and attention. So one criticism that I've heard commonly made, usually by colleagues of mine who work in psychology, is that a lot of the technologized forms of life hacking, like health and behavior change apps, for example, aren't very effective and they're not properly grounded in the the science of behavior change. And so they're trying to take a much more traditional kind of systematic, large-scale study approach to designing and developing effective behavior change change apps. But part of me wonders whether there is a, a deep tension here between the traditional approach to scientific theory building and the life hacking ethos, which is that you know, scientific theory building is based on empirical evidence of populations and make, developing statistical averages or norms for those populations and figuring out what works for those statistical averages within a population. Whereas the life hacking ethos, because it is individualistic, is trying to figure out what works for the individual. And there's no reason to suspect that, or while you might think that your average or normal member of the population is what works for everyone else should work for you, it's also probably true that there are idiosyncrasies in this, and so what works for you doesn't work for everyone else. So is this criticism maybe kind of barking up the wrong tree or misunderstanding what the life-hacking approach is because it wants to apply this scientific theory-building approach to something that is supposed to be different from that? I don't know if that mm -hmm. makes sense, but that's the way I'm trying sure. to frame it. So this is a complicated issue, and I do spend some time in the book talking about how I think life-hacking and the discussion of the issues you were just raising is very much part of a larger conversation about how do we know what is true, particularly given the reproducibility crisis that a lot of the social sciences and health sciences are facing, right? And this is a more broad issue with self-help in general because self-help is full of quackery. It's full of woo. Uh, people love to give anecdotal evidence of this worked for me and so it could probably work for you alongside all sorts of odd claims. So when Tim Ferriss started out his like lifestyle guru uh, enterprise, he was selling shortly out of, out of college something called Brain Quicken, which was what people call a nootropic, which is supposed to make you smarter and faster and better. And he had anecdotes of people who said, 
this really worked for me. And he said, these people are from Yale and Harvard and very prestigious universities. He would say things like, the ingredients in his nootropic have been found in individual studies to perhaps be effective, but doesn't really speak of like how large those studies are, how many people were in the studies. Like, are we talking N equals 50, N equals 100, N equals 1,000 or larger? And then he would make claims like patent pending, which it's very easy to make a patent pending claim. All you do is have to send a, a, a piece of paper to the USPTO. And he was selling this and people weren't really buying it. But then some people said, well, it, it really actually isn't doing that much for my mental acuity, but it's helping me be a better athlete. <laughs> so he actually rebranded the product as a fitness augment as a fitness supplement and i think that's that exemplifies the uh, a lot of the quackery and suspect claims that you find out there in this space whether it is supplements or whether it is brain stimulant brain stimulation devices you put on your head and because i characterize quantified self as a part of life hacking quantified self is definitely touching on this because as you alluded to there's this notion of N equals one as being a very important idea and, and quantified self. And the idea is that I am a unique individual with a novel genetic profile and with a novel set of environmental influences and exposures. And therefore, if I quantify my life and conduct these experiments in a sufficiently rigorous way, I might be able to figure out things about myself that would never really emerge from an N equals 10,000 sort of study. And I'm a bit suspect of that. I think there's some evidence of that, but I think that sort of path can really go awry. And I think the best example of that is Seth Roberts. Seth Roberts was a psychologist who studied rat cognition, and he was a big self-experimenter, a big proponent of the quantified self. And he had theories about sleep and about acne, and he was famous for a rather novel theory of diet in a book called The Shangri-La Diet. And it had something to do with respect to discerning how rich the diet was. And so he recommended that people eat food that, did, that didn't smell very tasty, and this would help them lose weight. And so, for instance, people would clip their noses with swimmer's clips so you know, the, the water doesn't go up your nose to help them lose weight. And a lot of people experimented with it and found that helpful. But one of his more interesting theories later is that he realized that he could sleep better by eating a chunk of pork belly. And this was accidental. Again, he tracked everything throughout his day. And on a day he ate a chunk of pork belly for whatever reason, uh, he noted that he slept better that night. And he would then do this and have good sleep. But he realized eating a big chunk of bacon, you know, uh, every day was not very feasible. And so he thought, what happens if I eat a lot of butter throughout the day? That's much more accessible. I can get that in a restaurant. I can take it to work with me. And he, again, he found that helped with his sleep. But because he tracked also his mental acuity, he had a computer program that would give him very simple math puzzles and measure how quickly he answered them. He noticed that when he started eating a half a stick of butter for the purposes of sleep, his math scores got a little bit better too. And he came to the conclusion that based on his N of one experiments, eating half a stick of butter every day made him smarter. The sad irony was that he 
was going to publish a regular column in a New York uh, newspaper about his self-experiments, his N-of-one experiments. But he had a heart attack right before his first column appeared entitled, Butter Makes Me Smarter. So I think there are some dangers with respect to the people that take on the task of doing these sort of experiments right there. For instance, the Curies who did experiments with radioactivity uh, would tape radioactive materials to their skins and show that it created a burn in the hopes that maybe this could be used to burn cancer, but they also gave themselves radi radioactive uh, sickness and poisoning and gave themselves cancer. Not only was it a way to treat cancer, um, so there are significant dangers in doing N of one experiments only moderated by yourself because maybe you're not being really careful about what's happening. There's cognitive biases and blind sites you might encounter because you're thinking, oh, there's no confirmation bias. Seth Roberts believed this because he said, me seeing the correlation between the butter and the ability to do these math puzzles was purely accidental. You only saw it in the data after the fact and then confirmed it. I still think that's dangerous too because you can see all kinds of spurious correlations in data whenever you're tracking a lot of stuff. And then you think, oh, here's a spurious correlation. And then your psychology, your cognitive biases are likely to predispose you to see the dangers. I mean, just to clarify one point, I mean, Seth Roberts died as far as I remember. It, it, yes. it was a fatal heart attack. It wasn't just yes. a... A heart attack that he recovered from. So, it's yes, a he died of cardiac health disease. It's impossible to say whether that half a stick of butter is the thing that necessarily caused it, but he wasn't tracking his daily cholesterol or even you know weekly or monthly cholesterol. So, his life hacking, his quantified self experience of n equals one, could have killed him. Yeah, and um, so the other point about that as well is experimenting on yourself is difficult insofar as and one of the gold standards in scientific research is controlled double-blind studies. And it's pretty hard to conduct a controlled blinded study on yourself. Uh, so, exactly right. So I don't think yeah. he could have done that. Yeah, so you're subject to all sorts of confounds when it comes to interpreting data and seeing spurious correlations and assuming there's some causal link as well. So that that is an important point. And this also, I think, connects to the second point which I wanted to raise, which is just that, and, and Seth Roberts actually illustrates this too to some extent, is that when you're focusing particularly on, let's say, metrics of, for optimizing your behavior, there's a danger of fixating on things that are easy to measure, that are salient to you, that are attractive to you, and they may not actually be beneficial in the long run. That could be because there are other things that you should be focusing on that you can track and quantify, such as, in Seth Roberts' case, is cholesterol or something like that. But also, a more philosophical point, perhaps, is that maybe there are some things in life that just aren't that easy to track and quantify, and ignoring them doesn't do any favors for your long-term health, meaning, or well-being but it's not being captured by this ethos or approach to life. Well, what do you think about that concern? I agree. I think there's two notions in particular that are, that are helpful here. One is uh, an idea sometimes referred to as Campbell's Law, and the idea is when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And we definitely see this in groups and in organizations and institutions. Once you say, I'm going to test student scores to measure education, people end up manipulating those scores, teaching to the test rather than teaching for genuine learning. So 
regardless of the level, whether it's the individual up to the institution, there's a significant danger that when you fixate on something, you're going to end up distorting the very thing that you're trying to measure and make an improvement upon. And specifically with respect to optimization, I have a term that I sometimes say is that self-optimizing can be suboptimal. And again, since so much of life hacking is borrowed from the computer realm, sometimes it's borrowed rather naively. And actual algorithm designers do know that premature optimization is what they, they say is the root of all evil. And you have to be careful about the optimization you're doing. So, for example, you can optimize the wrong thing. You can optimize one thing at the expense of everything else. You can stay fixated on one thing when you should really change because the context has changed. And you should you could be optimizing when you should really be doing something else. And again, Nick Winter, the, the motivation hacker, he tried to be smart about this and he i think he succeeded by his own rights um, but when he was trying to maximize his productivity and he ended up working like 120 hour a week using all the various hacks and theories and motivation beeminder and recording his screen so other people could watch what he was doing to keep him accountable but when he set out to be insanely productive, he also gave himself goals of like hang out with friends three times this week and go on a date with my girlfriend four times a week and do 100 push-ups and 50 pull-ups. And so he at least tried to correct for naive optimization by making sure other variables in his life that he cared about also had metrics and could also be optimized. But when people first approach life hacking, they're also they're often very naive about it and think, oh, I'm just going to fixate on this one aspect of my life. So, for example, maybe pickup artists, uh, they're, uh, they were profiled in a book called The Game. And the author of The Game, one of the insights he ends up saying, and this is very much true to all of this, is that he got really good at picking up women, but he was miserable actually having relationships with women. In fact, everything he learned in pickup artistry was kind of counterproductive to having a meaningful uh, relationship. And so there's certainly inherent dangers in naive optimization that I think people in first exposure to life hacking aren't aware of and then can do some harm to themselves or others. Yeah, Neil, Neil Strauss wrote the game and he wrote a follow-up book a few years later about trying to have a meaningful relationship. I can't remember the name of that book though, but yeah. Yeah, it might have been called like the Bible or something like that. And it, that profile, he ended up realizing he had become a sex addict. So he was trying yeah. to figure out how to have, have a good relationship in the context of his sex addiction. And the main character that he, he um, uh, portrays in the, in the game is a pickup artist by the name of Mystery. And again, he you know, had some mental health issues, but he was trying to create the perfect optimized uh, relationship triad, uh, menage a trois, where he wanted, uh, and pickup artists sometimes use this scale of rating women on a scale of 10. He wanted to have two 10 bisexual women, one a blonde, one an Asian, who were both in love with one another and himself. <laughs> and he was just, you know, charging for this and he created all kinds of drama unnecessary and ended up having to check himself into a mental health facility. Uh, so again, at least in both of those stories, you do find some evidence, at least, that these people were cognizant of the fact of trying to optimize your, uh, the women that you can pick up and the you know, multiple polyamorous relationship you can manage can sometimes go awry. 
Yeah, I mean, this, I think, connects nicely to another criticism of this approach, which has to do with the impact of it on society more broadly. So, I mean, we're talking here about the costs of the optimizing approach to the individuals here. But there's also maybe a concern about the injustice that it might cause or the consequences that might be distributed onto certain populations. So, I mean, in the case of the pickup artist movement, women seem to bear the brunt of the the negative manifestations of this um, approach to life. And, I mean, more generally, there's a criticism of the life-hacking approach, which is that it's it's a luxury for, you know, rich, middle-class, single men as opposed to for other people. So, I mean, what do you think about those kinds of injustice, systemic bias concerns? I'm sympathetic to them. I use a metaphor for that latter point of know the difference between the creative class and what might be called like the the automatons the people driving uber you know the the ones who the apps and the machines are telling them exactly what to do until they're replaced all together but even self-help in general there is a sort of systemic concern that you might express express and you might say well what's wrong with wanting to improve yourself and margaret olivia little coined this phrase that i think is very much relevant called cultural complicity And again, I don't want to come down too hard on people that want to improve themselves. I want to improve themselves. But when you think, for instance, about productivity and you want to make yourself that much more productive so you stand out from your colleagues and peers, that then makes them feel that they then need to be all that more productive, right? And so, again, some people have to work in a job where, for instance, in an Amazon warehouse, they have three times a day that they can take a bathroom break and they have 10 minutes to get to the bathroom and back, regardless of whether there's a line and how long it takes them to walk to the bathroom. You know, that's a very regimented life. But among the creative class, they feel the need to be self-regimental, to be all that more productive. And the notion of cultural complicity is that by trying to satisfy this expectation of productivity or health in this very individualistic way, you were perpetuating the very norm by which you are suffering. So Little spoke about this in the context of uh, plastic surgery, right? So perhaps maybe you don't like your nose, you think your nose is a little bit too big, and you know you go to the plastic surgeon and now you have a more quote unquote normal nose. Well, you just made that life that much more difficult for everyone with the, a nose like you used to have. And so there's lots of areas, I think, where we can critique, including even just this larger issue of the self-improvement culture itself and how we're complicit in shaping the world of, a, of those around us just by trying to improve ourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a good illustration of that problem of, of how what you do has this effect on others as well, at, on, on others as a class or as, as a group. Uh, I mean, related to that is another common criticism of this approach, which is that it places too much emphasis on the individual and their responsibility for changing their relationship or reaction to the world and not enough on the need for systemic reform. So, I mean, you actually mentioned the example of stoicism earlier on. And this is a criticism that I hear people make of the stoic approach to life, which is that the emphasis is all upon what you as an individual can control in how you interpret and interact with the world. And when you think about it, there's actually very little that you can control meaningfully. So this encourages a kind of withdrawing within the self to optimize your own interactions with reality and not 
care about other individuals and not care about changing the world and making it a better place for other individuals. Uh, what would you say in response to that concern? I agree with that concern too. Martin Luther King Jr. had this, this nice quote that I thought is quite relevant to this context of this individualistic impulse of like, you need to solve your own particular problems. You need to uplift yourself. You need to be more productive and more healthy and take care of all this yourself. He said, it's all right to tell a man to lift himself up by his bootstraps, but it is cruel just to say a bootless man ought to lift himself up by his own bootstraps. And I would add, particularly if you're standing on his feet. And so the, the, this individualistic ethos can be helpful. Ultimately, we really are all individually responsible for our own contentment. But that shouldn't blind us to the idea that many of the problems that we're struggling with now are social and systemic problems. So what do we do in a world where we move towards greater and greater ultimate auto automation? Is health a, you know, in just this particular individualistic decision, like I'm going to start vaping? Or, you know, is that part of a larger social system, a public health concern that can be addressed in a particular way? And one of the distinctions, again, I try to make in the book is kind of a question of ethics. I ask, is a particular hack self or other oriented? I don't expect everyone to be selfless all the time, but some hacks like um, Serge Fugot, who's a very uh, out there sort of life hacker who has spent hundreds of thousand dollars um, hacking his own uh, health. Um, he had something in one of his blog posts where he sort of gave advice on how to cut in line. James Altucher, who uh, is a self-help guru, a computer science wizard, as he describes himself, uh, uh, investment guy, um, pretty famous. Uh, he also has talked about like how to cut in line, you know, so it's very individualistic, every, very uh, selfish. Um, the second ethical question I ask beyond the self and other oriented, is it exceptional or universal? And so when I go back in time and I look back to the 50s and 60s, I found some really nice uh, resources based on some other scholars work of paraplegic community. And they would publish this magazine called the Toomey's Gazette. And it was full of hacks of, for instance, if you have limited hand mobility, how you might turn the faucets on your sink or might, how you might hold a frying pan or something like that. And these were definitely hacks. They didn't call them hacks. Uh, but these sort of hacks could be universally used by everyone. It wouldn't you know, necessarily be just for yourself. So sometimes I like to deploy Immanuel Kant's notion of the categorical imperative. Like, is this an action that I would wish everyone else to follow. And for some hacks, uh, you know, sharing the way that you're able to better do something in the kitchen, yeah, everyone could learn how to do that and it would be a better world. But learning how to like better cut in line, that's that would be a worse world if everyone followed that particular bit of advice. And then the third bit, is it beneficial or harmful? Because a lot of the hacks that are out there are supposedly beneficial, but I think in fact they're harmful. And in the computer hacking realm, and particularly because I spent a lot of time at MIT, there was a fairly robust hacker ethic. There was this notion of if you're going to like break into a lock or you're going to break into a system, you shouldn't harm or foul the system. In fact, if you break into something, you should leave it better than how you sort of found it. And in life hacking, there's very little concern with an ethic with others. And 
in the hacking meaning realm, you talked a little bit about stoicism, and I think it's right to say it's a very individualistic approach. But in Buddhism, you find, you know, Wisdom 2.0 and Headspace app. And when I was looking at Headspace, this meditation app, I was like, why are there no compassion meditations? And I went on the forums and I was looking for, you know, there's, there's the tranquility and uh, Headspace had this advertising campaign where people are saying they meditate to crush it. And Tim Ferriss calls it, you know, an operating system for the mind that makes you more efficient. I'm like, well, what about all the compassion <laughs> that a lot of meditation in traditional Buddhist practices uh, are concerned with? And I only found two messages on the Headspace forum, two people asking for, hey, how come there's nothing on compassion here? I don't know if that has changed, but a couple of years ago, there was just no attention there. So I think, again, that's another uh, blinkered sort of view of the world that I think is right to be concerned about and it's right to criticize. Uh, maybe just kind of one last criticism I wanted to raise with you. And this is actually going back more to the individual effects of these technologies, which is that do they encourage a less intuitive and a less kind of phenomenologically rich engagement with the world and with others so what i mean here is that one complaint that people have about technology in general is that it mediates our relationship with reality instead of focusing on the world around us we focus on how that world is represented to us through data or interfaces on our devices so it takes us out of the world as it is one concern you could have about this kind of systematic approach to life is that it does something similar, irrespective of whether it's a technologized form of systematization. It, it gets you to focus on you know, explicit representations of data about your life, or it gets you to impose you know, rigid structures on your day and your life. And so you lose this kind of in-the-moment authenticity. Is that something we should be concerned about? I am sympathetic to that concern, but I don't think it's one of my major concerns. When I was thinking about this, I was trying to think about the psychology of people who have this systematizing impulse and the people that don't. And again, I know like as a teacher, I'm very systematizing. I have all these tips and hacks for my students about how to do well. And sometimes it just bounces off them like, you know, they're rubber. <laughs> and I've come to appreciate that there are different types of personalities out there. And when I looked at the literature on this, trying to figure out like what kind of psychology do uh, computer hackers have, because there's, there's nothing on the psychology of quantified self or life hackers, uh, I realized that there's two different cognitive styles in the literature. Sometimes it's called the rational style or the analytic style, and sometimes the other one is called the intuitive style. And so I think for some people, they just have a very systemic approach to life and to looking at things. And for them, that can work and it can have downsides. But if you have no way of thinking about life as a system, that can also have downsides. And so I just think there's a spectrum of personality and cognitive style there with their strengths and their weaknesses. The trick with life hacking as a type of self-help is that systematizing approach is being lauded above all others. And so this is where I'm a little bit sympathetic because it's one thing to say you have a particular cognitive style, but then to say that everyone needs to have the same particular cognitive style, the same particular way of looking at life, I think that's going a bit too far. And that's why I ended up with the metaphor of horse blinkers as like my final trope in the book. And my idea there is that life hacking you know, can help you focus on a distant goal 
It can help you block out distractions, just like horse blinkers can, right? The racehorse is focused on that finish line. The workhorse in the street is wearing his blinkers so it's not bothered by the bicyclists and the uh, motorists. But in doing so, you are blinkered. You're blocking things out. And maybe some of the things that you're blocking out is the context, maybe what you're trotting underfoot, the people that you're nudging aside. And so in that way, I think blinkers are a great uh, metaphor. And I was amazed and, and pleased, I suppose, at last year's South by Southwest, Panasonic demoed an actual product. They were like in my head, it seems like. It's kind of like a cubicle for the head. It's a cloth sort of, I don't know how to describe it, band that wraps around from the back of your head to the front of your head, leaving you just a little bit of space in front of your face. And it has noise-canceling earphones. And they were suggesting that in this contemporary world for the creative class, when there's people working around you, because maybe you're at WeWork or whatnot, or in an open office plan, which are horrible, uh, you put these on and then you'll be able to concentrate. And I thought, well, that's perfect because it is responding to the 21st century and the material and environmental con conditions of our 21st century. But again, is also a very individualistic approach. It's also sort of culturally complicit in furthering that individualistic ethos of saying, I'm just going to put this on and block everyone else out. Um, and it has its utility, but it also has its its limitations and its, its problems. And so that's what I think we need to be cognizant of. I wasn't trying to just completely critique life hacking and say it's horrible. I think too many people have done that. Rather, I wanted to do what scholar Sarah Watson calls constructive criticism, which is to look at the benefits and the detriments to come up with some ways of thinking about life hacking so we can understand those. And I think life hacking as a set of blinkers is very apt. It's useful, it has utility, particularly in our current culture and environment, but also has its limitations and problems if we're not cognizant of them. No, I mean, I think you and I are both um, simpatico on that approach. In the article that I wrote on quantified relationships, the overarching conclusion was that we should be cautiously optimistic about this kind of technology and this uh, approach to relationships. And as long as that we are cognizant of the ethical risks and dangers, we can actually proceed uh, more vigorously with that optimism. It's when we're not cognizant of them or not thinking about those issues that I think the, the problems tend to arise in particular. Not that being ethically cognizant or conscious is a panacea, but just that it, it means you're maybe less likely to run into the, the pitfalls of of this approach to life. Um, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Uh, we've run a bit long, but uh, I think it's been a, a good conversation, a lot of detail, and I'd like to thank you for joining me for it. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure to speak to you, and I do appreciate your work. Uh, I don't know if you have to keep recording this, but um, I did enjoy your relationship hacking piece. Also, I don't know if you picked up on the Paul Graham part in my book. I thought it was very much related to one of your uh, blog posts, Should We Care About Inequality? And you were talking about Pinker's optimism. And in the book, I talked about Paul Graham saying he would prefer to live in a world in which, in his current situation, he was the poorest person. Did you see that? 
I, did, I can't remember that bit. I, I can't even remember what I wrote in the um, Pinker article, I think, is a problem. So that's, that's an issue I have that I often forget what I wrote. <laughs> yeah. So were, remind, I, remind me what I wrote. <laughs> I hadn't encountered the idea of sufficientism there. Yeah, yeah. sufficientarianism. Um, yeah, yeah. Sufficientarianism, yes. But the idea of, like, how much um, disparity should we have between, you know, the very wealthy and the very poor? And is it enough for the, the very wealthy to be super filthy wealthy if the very poor are at least able to lead, lead a decent life. And Paul Graham is a defender of income inequality because he thinks some people are that much more productive than other people. And if they're good at computers, they can become orders of magnitude more productive. And so they should have orders of magnitude more income or money or power or whatever it might be. And he said, that's perfectly fine. He doesn't want to ignore the people on the bottom rungs. If we can get them up to a level where they have enough money to get the education and the healthcare and the food and the decent life that they want to live. Um, so I just thought that was a really interesting issue because it seemed uh, very apt to the life hacking kind of individualistic ethos. And, but I also thought it was naive because it looks like the psychology literature shows that even if you're doing fairly well for yourself, if you see your neighbors doing so, so much better, it leads to discontent. So, you know, yeah. Paul Graham's a millionaire and if everyone was as rich as him, but then, you know, lots of other people were billionaires, I still feel like the millionaires would be discontent. <laughs> Yes, I, mean, I think that's a a constant theme of people who write about wealth and the super wealthy is that they're always comparing themselves to the person who's even wealthier. I'm sure not even Jeff Bezos is that happy. No? Yes, <laughs> and that's the hedonistic treadmill uh, adaptation yeah. as well. Yeah, I think I am remembering now what I wrote in that post about Pinker. I think I said that sufficientarianism is problematic when... In, in certain contexts, I, I had a thought experiment involving people landing on an island and there being a super wealthy person living on the island, like a Richard Branson type figure who treats them unequally. And you might think that's prob a problematic, even if they have sufficient to live, that there's something undignified about that kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I think, as I said, we'll, we'll leave it there. I'll, I'll leave this in the conversation. Uh, thanks again. Okay, but John, thank you. Bye bye.